class of America is being squandered. How are we going to restore our nation back to a sensible, citizen-centric government? This is my country. for populism with a purpose. Welcome to Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Joyce is a businesswoman, not a politician, and she's here to offer pragmatic, possible, and post-partisan solutions for the 21st century. Now, your host for Reimagine America, Joyce Cordy. And good morning and welcome to the Reimagine America Radio Hour on this first Sunday of November. We are now exactly one year and two days away from Election Day. I hope you're more excited about that than I am. Ecstatic. Well, you know, it, it never stopped. So it's hard to think that it's... You know, only 367 days from now, you know, because it just it it just never after a while you get numb by the weekly polling. If I were queen, I'd say no more polls. The only poll that counts is the one on the first Tuesday of November of 2020. Um, Or maybe I should say the first Monday in February of 2020, because that's when the Democrats will, um, in all likelihood, commit Harakiri by nominating Elizabeth Warren um, if, when, by winning the Iowa caucuses. It 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 does blow me away that um, these people with unlimited time and unlimited money, other people's money. Uh, <clears throat> park themselves in this teeny tiny state um, with less than the population of the Bay Area, right? Probably less than the population of um, Silicon Valley plus San Francisco. Forget everything else. And those people decide who the nominees of these two, quote, major political parties are. I want to remind. Not always, though. Not always. They're not always the ones that, because like sometimes people win Iowa and then they and then they lose New Hampshire and then they win South Carolina and the same is true. Yeah, <clears throat> but there is a winnowing of the field in Iowa, and you know it is a small state with a very undiverse population. And while I am a big proponent of listening to flyover country, which is what Iowa is, um, <clears throat> I am uh, I'm dismayed that this force, I mean, you know, Elizabeth Warren's been there for almost two years trying to win the Iowa caucuses with the idea that that would propel her through New Hampshire and into South Carolina where I expect she's going to hit this freight train called Joe Biden. But nonetheless, I, I, I think it's unrepresentative. So, you know, if, if I were queen, I would say two things. I don't want to see any more polls because the polls of this morning were so jumbled that they don't tell you anything. Um, 
And let's all remember that the polls, even the exit polls in twenty in 2016, said that Hillary was going to win by a landslide. Um, and that only started to change after first, first Florida didn't go the way that the exit polls said it would go. And then um, North Carolina and South Carolina started to fall um, right up the eastern seaboard. Uh, <clears throat> so... If I were queen, I would just say, stop with all the polling. The only poll that really matters is the one in sixty-seven in 367 days or uh, in about 98 days if you buy the argument that Iowa is important. <clears throat> and, and then on that, on that same note, the Washington Post this morning woke me up with a uh, news alert to tell me that the latest polling says that um, it's Sanders or Warren or Biden and Pete Buttigieg is making a stand in Iowa. Well, let me go back and say it one more time. Why are we deciding at this late date in our history that only somebody over the age of 70 is qualified to be president of the United States. The toughest job, if you do the job correctly, the toughest job on the face of the earth. You know, I don't get it. I don't get why, you know, Pete may be too young, barely old enough to run. You know, he's 37. But there are a whole lot of people in that remaining field of 14 um, uh, Beto O'Rourke dropped out on Friday. Um, who can who who could capably, you know, take the mantle of the Democratic Party and maybe maybe pull it back toward a place where the majority of Americans would recognize it. But no, no, no. Only the only the septuagenarians are considered viable. So much for my soliloquy. <clears throat> you know, I think that the, the one thing that the Democrats could do that would guarantee the reelection of Donald Trump would be to nominate Elizabeth Warren. Not just because Elizabeth Warren... $22 trillion health care program is full of assumptions that challenge constitutionality um, and, and, and irrationality, um, but also that the assumptions that would add cost that are, you know, reasonable things like what do you do with 2 million people who all of a sudden lose their jobs? Do you make them government employees? because somebody still needs to administer all these claims. Um, <clears throat> and and if you don't take the profit motive out of, you know, well, if you do Medicare for all, you remove the profit motive. You eliminate half the hospitals in the country. Um, but none of the negative assumptions, none of the assumptions of cost and inconvenience, which has a cost, a material cost, um, none of those things... Um, are addressed 
in the $20 trillion increase spending number. So it's probably closer to, according to most economists, eh, 35 or $40 trillion over a decade, you know, give or take. What, what's a trillion between friends? Especially when you already have a $23 trillion deficit and no way in sight, no compromise, no idea, no emphasis on the fact that that $23 trillion debt is growing at the rate of a trillion dollars a year. So if you want to learn more about why I don't think there's much value in the Democratic primary as it is structured, go to reimagineamerica.org. And I published a piece this week on that exactly that subject and what I would do, well, part of what I would do, and there'll be another one this week about how we could make these Prime, these, these primary debates valuable for you and I as a voter. And on that note, um, I'm hoping that you're enjoying this extra hour of rest that you got, along with thousands of California firefighters who are coming off the lines in Northern California, uh, where the Kincaid fire today is 76% contained. Um, and there are now several fires in Southern California um, with less containment. But we're going to be back in just a minute after these commercial announcements to talk a little bit about fire and fire safety and what our government should be doing in this instance. Listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back. <clears throat> you know, just about three days ago, PGE announced it's not planning any more power outages in Northern California in the foreseeable future. They want us to be grateful. Well, it's really not up to PG. It's really not due to anything PG&E did. It's good old Mother Nature has actually pushed some high pressure over us. And while we really need some rain, um, it, it appears that we've got another couple weeks of high pressure over Northern California. And you know what that will buy us? You know what that will bring us? It'll bring us a couple of weeks in which Home Depot and Ace Hardwares throughout Northern California can restock on generators because they can't keep them in stock, nor can they keep lanterns in stock or batteries for that matter. It's a whole new way of life in California. And you know what PG&E blames fires like the almost now 80,000 acre Kincaid fire on? wind. It's the wind's fault, says our brethren at PG&E. All of a sudden, we, we have wind in California, like never before, only in the last three years. Gale force winds, 
let me correct that. Winds that are at least Category 1 hurricane winds. Winds up to almost Category 3, you know, we were up to 95 and 100 mile an hour winds, did impact Northern and Central California near and not so near that fire last week. You know, those winds were even at sea level. Um, and and PG&E likes to call these conditions abnormal, abnormal wind conditions. But, you know, take a second. Think back, way back, maybe as far as last winter, when 60-mile-an-hour wind gusts blew not just over the rural mountainous sections north of us, but right here in central urban California during a couple of really nasty winter windstorms and rainstorms. Um, You know, I I remember the gate swinging back and forth, way in the wind. Um, 60 mile an an hour winds are not typical of everyday living in the central or northern parts of California or in Southern California. But here's the deal. They may be exceptional, but they are not abnormal. They're not abnormal in any part of PG&E's service area or in any part of Con Edison's service area, the two big electrical utilities, north and south in California, both of whom um, are struggling with wind events, Santa Ana winds. I can't remember a time in my life when we didn't get wind warnings in October in Southern California for the Santa Ana winds. Now, we know that it's bad business practice to plan for the most extreme conditions, unless, of course, you're a Democratic politician. But that, setting that aside, you, you, you aim to, in, in business, to handle the 80%, which is the common core of your inventory, your, your, your facilities, your whatever. And if you plan for 80% of the activity in the state of California, you are going to plan for gale force winds. That's anything over 40 miles an hour. Now, it's a funny thing in this state that wants to be focused on renewable electrical generation sources. That 40 miles an hour is about the wind speed that's required to turn wind turbines sufficiently to generate um, high-capacity electricity. Uh, Let's say mm, in areas like the Altamont Pass between Livermore and the Great Central Valley of California. And those turbines are commercially viable only because, yes, indeed, there's a lot of wind up there all the time. So I'm just saying, pg e and the California Department of Energy, you can't have it both ways. You can't want renewable wind-generated power and then deny that we have gale force winds in terms of how you plan to transmit the electricity that's generated by those renewable resources. 
So PG&E has been justifying leaving millions in the dark and cold for days at a time by claiming these power outages are intended to prevent live wires from sparking, igniting dry vegetation beneath and adjacent to them. Well, let me tell you, I saw with my very own eyes last winter in a driving, driving rain, the capacitor across the street sparking its little head off like it was a 4th of July firework. And that was in, you know, that was right here in urban Silicon Valley. So... Live wires will spark. It doesn't necessarily require that the vegetation around them, you know, that, that there be vegetation around them. They will spark. And by the way, there was vegetation around the one that I watched spark in the middle of the night in the middle of a driving rainstorm. The good news was because it was raining, the leaves were wet and they didn't catch on fire. So that was the good news. Okay. So live wire sparking is an accepted cause of the deadly campfire that swept through Paradise, California a year ago this week. And if you needed more proof about live wire sparking fires, you need only look to fires this past Sunday in Lafayette, Malpitas, and the Sacramento River Delta. Every one of those fires were caused by power lines sparking into surrounding vegetation in areas that had not been deemed high risk by PG&E and still had power. With these latest fires, it's probably safe to assume that PG&E will expand its service interruptions into relatively more suburban rather than just rural areas the next time more than a summer breeze is blowing or forecast to blow. PG&E is inflicting this misery on wide swaths of its service area for a simple reason. They're tired of being the guilty party when it comes time to assign blame and pay the bills in the aftermath of fire. So to avoid responsibility... PG&E's new management intends to punish the ratepayers who are already stuck with the highest utility rates in the country. And their CEO has made it clear, get used to it, because it will take at least a decade to correct the situation. And because PG&E's been found at fault in the Camp Fire and the Tubbs Fire and several other, the Public Utilities Commission has already approved rate increases to offset. In other words, you and I are going to pay for the $30 billion with a B in potential liability. And that's according to the PG&E bankruptcy filing. And that's before you add in the Kincaid Fire were 350 structures plus whole vineyards, were 350 structures were lost, half of those homes, plus whole vineyards were burned over, and it'll be years before they come back, and pasture land was burnt over, and there are going to be years of business disruption in wine and dairy and other areas. Um, all of that will be added to the $30 billion. And we'll be back 
in just a moment to talk a little bit more about how PG&E could have prevented some of this from happening. listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. So, PG&E equipment failures have been found to have sparked all but one of the major Northern California fires in the last 3 years. About 100 people died in those fires. And as we've already said, there's about $30 billion in known property damage and um, victim compensation funds um, that have already been applied for. So the only exception among the major fires was the car fire in 2008 in north of Redding. Uh, at the northern end, for you who are not Californians, at the very northern end of the Central Valley. And that was caused by a car that had a flat tire and the rim contacted the pavement and caused sparks. And of course, when you don't clear out the underbrush in your state and national forests, um, spark, dry weather, heat, boom, fire. The Kincaid Fire, which is still not, as I'm speaking to you, fully contained after two weeks. 76% containment this week and 400 structures still in danger. And it happened while most of the residents of Sonoma County were languishing in the dark in their second preemptive power outage in the last two weeks. How did that fire start? Well, it started when a damaged long-haul high-voltage power transmission line's jumper cable came loose in the wind and sparked the vegetation below it. Yes, it's a PG&E transmission line. So there are only two significant differences between the Kincaid Fire and the Camp Fire last year that claimed almost 80 California lives and completely to the burnt to the ground, an entire town, the town of paradise. So what's the most, there there are two important differences. The first one is absolutely the most important, and that's that there was no loss of life in the Kincaid fire because of the quick reaction of local emergency preparedness personnel. They've learned a lot of lessons. The Tub Fire was also in Sonoma County, and they learned from the Camp Fire as well. So the immediate enforced mandatory evacuations caused a lot of inconvenience. But it saved lives because it takes a whale of a lot of time to move a whole lot of people out of harm's way all at one time. The other thing they did was to open shelters that allowed people and their animals so they didn't force people to make difficult choices. The second difference is the length of time it took PG&E to take responsibility for the fire's ignition. It was months in the campfire. 
Who? Us? No, we didn't do that. It was only ours in terms of Kincaid. But here's the truth, folks. A better public relations strategy isn't even the beginning of a solution. So Governor Newsom is correct to acknowledge that he's frustrated and that the buck does stop with him. So what did he do? He did what every politician does when you don't have an answer. He promised an investigation. But I'm not sure we need one. Um, I'm going to fess up that I was part of the kitchen cabinet during the 2000 energy crisis, so I've probably been a little closer to this than some of the rest of you. But I think the problems are probably pretty clear to most people in California and most people across the country who are watching this sort of absolute mismanagement. The lack of a power infrastructure inventory, which is capable, which, which has enough information to actually quantify the required annual maintenance of high-voltage transmission lines and local electric power lines throughout the service area for PG&E does not exist. Let me repeat that. There is no overall infrastructure inventory so that they could really do maximal planning for maintenance. Year after year, beginning with the San Bruno gas explosion and fire in 2010, we've been told of PG&E's failures to maintain both its equipment and the records that even tell us where the equipment's located and when it was last inspected. It's so bad. That's one of the reasons it takes so much time to get the power back on after these wind events, because they have to go out and manually look at every line, every mile of line, because they don't have an inventory. They don't know when they've last maintained these facilities. And you know what, Gavin, an investigation is going to prove that there's a lack of regulatory supervision of PG&E's maintenance practices at either the state or the local level, and in fact, at the national level, because most of those high-voltage lines are part of, of a multi-state interstate grid. At any level, federal, state, or local, show me the annual preventive maintenance checklist program that pg e is required to follow. <laughs> you can't, because it doesn't exist. Why isn't vegetation removed from a defensible space surrounding especially these high-voltage transmission wires. If you don't do it every year, at least why isn't it done on a rotating basis so many facilities each year? Because if you had done that, PG&E, if you had maintained a defensible space around your high-transmission lines, neither the camp nor the Kincaid fires would have happened. Or if they'd happened, they would have been little tiny 10-acre fires that were immediately put out. And if you go back and look at the uh, car fire, you you see a, a lack of appropriate forest management policies at the federal, state, and local levels, including, including updating the urban-slash-wilderness boundary practices, you know, Geyserville, Windsor, Healdsburg, Sebastopol, 
all kind of, unless you're a really big wine country tourist, if you're not a Californian, probably they don't mean a lot to you. But they were all, when I grew up here in in Sonoma County, actually, and Napa County, um, those were remote hamlets. They They were places you went to visit because of their archaic nature. Today, those are major suburbs of Santa Rosa. But there's no local planning agency that ever seems to have stopped and asked itself, what if or what is the increased risk to rangeland or forest fire surrounding this town? Or now that we are a multiple stoplight community, so to speak, can we get the townspeople to safety if potentially there's a fire? Nobody's asked those questions. Gavin Newsom spent eight years as governor-in-waiting, largely an honorific position. So when we come back, let's talk about what if, what if in the years that California was chiding the rest of the nation on the subject of climate change, Gavin, who's a really smart guy with a successful business background, had suggested to Governor Brown an aggressive plan to modernize California's utility infrastructure. Just think about that for a minute. What if? And we'll be back to explain what would have happened. You're listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org, reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. So when we went to break, I was saying, what if, what if Gavin Newsom had spent his eight years as the governor in waiting, working on an aggressive plan to modernize California's utility infrastructure? After all, he was still the mayor of San Francisco when... Uh, PG&E's gas system blew up in neighboring San Bruno, and we first learned that PG&E has no maintenance program. There have been a lot of conflicting priorities in the state over the last decade. Yeah, they say that their summers are hotter and longer, but there are a whole lot of causes for that, and, and perhaps on another day when we talk about climate change, we can discuss some of those. But the fact is that our annual fire season now lasts nine months of the year. Water allocation. We've had multiple year droughts. Last year we had a surplus and the year before we had a surplus, which demonstrated that our water resource program is out is aging and in need of, of um, renovation. We need greater storage. We voted for it. We voted bonds to increase our water storage capability in wet years, and yet the state's been very slow to do anything. Population growth requiring a million or more new units of affordable housing has resulted in more encroachment on the urban wilderness boundary, stretching emergency resources to the, almost to the breaking point and requiring new and longer utility lines from dispatch to delivery. Plus, the state has focused on increased renewable energy generation. 
generation by virtue of its nature that has to come from the more remote areas of the state and be transported along these high-voltage lines to the more suburban and urban areas where the highest demand is. Thus, it was only this push for renewables that made the geysers a viable source of power generation, for example. For years, they were owned by Department of Water Resources, um, and they couldn't turn the damn excuse my French, they couldn't turn them on because it was so expensive to generate power that way. Now, because there are all kinds of incentives and tax breaks, it's viable. It's, it's in PG&E's interest to uh, use those geysers to generate power. So all of these conflicting priorities form a backdrop for a compelling argument for a comprehensive and urgent infrastructure renewal plan, starting with the known weaknesses in our public utilities. Yet, in eight years as lieutenant governor, there's no evidence that Newsom ever suggested a reasonable, if ambitious, plan to Governor Brown. And now he gets to reap the rewards of hesitation. I do believe that he's angry, even outraged. But he is also still hesitant to move with the force of his outrage. I mean, it's, outrage means nothing if it doesn't change something. He's limited by PG&E's bankruptcy deal um, with the state, which runs through June of next year. But investigations and task forces are, in fact, classic government speak for take no action. Let's see how this plays out. This past Friday, Newsom set up a task force, but it's led by his four closest political appointees to consider what would be involved in a state takeover of PG&E. Where is Mary Nichols, who lived through, who is the resource um, department secretary for the state who lived through the um, early 2000s energy crisis and really could provide some uh, knowledge, guidance, and, and reach back to people who really do understand how to manage energy in an emergency. But she's not included in this task force. So it's not really a serious, it's shelfware. They're just going to say, oh, it would be too complicated for the state of California to take over the management of PG&E. And you know what? That's a good decision because, <laughs> no, no, the state should not take over the management of PG&E. So let's talk about what really is, you know, behind creating shelfware, et cetera. What's really making the governor hesitant to act on his honest outrage? In a word, money. In every part of our government, money talks louder than constituent needs. So try telling PG&E that you're filing for bankruptcy and won't be paying your utility bill, and they'll shut your service off. But when they declare bankruptcy, the PUC made up of politicians can't wait to approve a rate hike that you will pay if you live in Northern California. And by the way... Southern California Edison customers, it's coming to you next. Because 
PG&E's arguing they need the rate increase so that they can pay for the claims that homeowners who have been burnt out or the survivors of victims of this utility's greed can get paid. Faced with a minimum of a decade or more of frequent planned service interruptions, Californians who have the means are busy installing solar power and battery backup so they can cut their electric cord. That costs other people more. Buying gasoline-powered generators entails a whole new set of risks in suburban and urban California, where the wind blows. Modifying landscape, that's another way to reduce your risk of vegetation firing. But what if you don't own your own home, and the majority of Californians don't? None of those options are available to you. What do you do if you're elderly or infirm and you need electricity to power breathing devices, food pumps, and other medical equipment? PG&E's made no provision for those people. What if you are housebound and have no means to recharge your phone? You suffer and you have no recourse. It took an executive order from the governor to stop PG&E charging affected customers on the days they had no power. And now... As money talks, PG&E will be required to reimburse some of the costs that cities and the state have had and counties in managing these fires and these outages, but not the individual customers, including commercial customers. So you see, it's all about the money. And that executive order, well, that was the most powerful statement of righteous indignation that the governor has been able to muster to date. Where was he when PG&E was failing to meet its obligations to maintain the high-voltage, long-haul transmission lines that carry that thermally generated power? He was out collecting campaign funds from PG&E and Con Edison plus major real estate developers, and casino-owning American Indian tribes. Now, I believe American Indian tribes should be well taken care of because they've paid a heavy price historically. But it, it, it should be noted that the River Rock Casino got its own Cal Fire flame and spark suppression team while wineries around it were burning to the ground. And you know who else has been contributing to Gavin's campaigns over the years? Environmentalists. The name Tom Stiers comes to mind. So where is Stiers? He's out advocating for a big Green New Deal while ignoring the one thing that has stood between the necessary upgrades to California's utility infrastructure an ongoing disaster, the cost of those upgrades. So as 180,000, 180,000, I'm repeating that, Sonoma County residents fled their homes in anticipation of the continued growth of the Kincaid fire, the government's failure to make sure that the cost of risk mitigation was paid over a decade leaves open to question how much higher will be the cost of repair and replacement than of doing the job correctly in the beginning as these developments were built.
And the other question is, can California wait any longer to begin paying the cost of mitigation? And if you live elsewhere in the country, you need to be asking yourself that same question. Civil engineers in this country believe we need to make a $4 trillion investment in minimum upgrades to our infrastructure to be competitive in the second half of the 21st century in a global marketplace. Do you hear anybody talking about that anywhere? If you want an idea, you can go look up Infrastructure Bank at reimagineamerica.org. And I've got a little piece there that will explain how we could have done this in 2017 painlessly. But we didn't. So here's where we are. The argument will be made that the logic of burying utility lines to prevent and protect from fire is too high. PG&E says it costs $3 million a mile versus $800,000 to put them up on power poles. And I just looked at a new development last week here where houses are going to sell for over a million dollars for two-bedroom condos. But they're putting up power poles. Please tell me you couldn't, over that 319 units, dis, uh, disperse the, the additional cost uh, of making this community fire safe. We've got to go take a commercial break, and we're going to come back, and we're going to talk about what action is required at this moment. What do we need to do right now to make 2020 not another fire catastrophe? You're listening to Reimagine America. For more information on today's topic, visit reimagineamerica.org. Reimagineamerica.org. Now, back to Reimagine America. Once again, your host, Joyce Cordy. And we're back with what needs to happen. It's nice of the governor's demanding that PG&E make significant progress on risk mitigation before next year's fire season. But I believe we already know that's not going to happen. So what do we need to do? We need to hire some external resources, some people like from the Tennessee Valley Authority who actually understand how to conduct um, an electrical power inventory. We need to do wilderness boundary fire suppression at both the state forest level and the national forest level. And we need to do that along the urban wilderness um, boundary at the county level. You know, it's exactly that kind of mitigation that saved um, the orchards of Ventura County, the citrus and avocado uh, orchards, this very week. They had defensible barriers. And if PG&E won't do these things, then the governor needs to turn to mutual assistance among the other states for help with the equipment's maintenance activities that must be performed. And in the case of burying the lines, I know who's got bulldozers, which is what you need to start to bury high-utility lines. And I know I'm oversimplifying. I'm oversimplifying this. But you know what we could do? Call out the National Guard. It's a whole lot more important mission than patrolling the fence on the southern border that's being broken through every day. That's a subject for another day. 
And you know what else? If this governor, given this kind of a wake-up call, can't get this done, then maybe, maybe it's time to find a governor who can. And just on that note, as I've said before, we have a $4 trillion national infrastructure issue. And if you go to reimagineamerica.org and you do a search on Infrastructure Bank, you will find a piece I wrote, I believe, in the beginning of 2017 that could have solved this problem. A modification of that plan could still solve the problem. But that would require that we have more business people and fewer lawyers in the Congress of the United States. I don't know what next week's show is going to be because things are changing so rapidly. Is it going to be climate change or race relations or maybe House Resolution 3 on prescription drugs? If you've got questions or topics you'd like me to ask or answer on the air, you will find me at Joyce at reimagineamerica.org or on Facebook at reimagineamerica or on Twitter at Joyce Cordy. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. Subscribe to the Reimagine America podcast at reimagineamerica.org and ricochet.com. Email Joyce at Joyce at Reimagine America Radio. Follow her on Twitter at Joyce Cordy, all one word. And you can follow the show at Reimagine Radio. This has been Reimagine America with Joyce Cordy. Take a minute now and go to www.reimagineamerica.org. Join the forum, donate, tell others, and sign up to receive future podcasts. That's reimagineamerica.org. And join us again next week for Reimagine America. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.